Welcome to the Lagan Valley Vineyard Podcast. We are a community passionate about seeing Lagan Valley filled with the presence and the teachings of Jesus. If you would like to connect with us or if we can help you in any way, please visit our website, laganvalleyvineyard.com. Good morning. If we haven't met before, uh, Chris, that was quite a glowing introduction there. I didn't quite know what that was. I might get that in writing. Um, my name is Amy. Um, I am part of the team here. I am one of the youth pastors at Lang Valley Vineyard. Um, if we haven't met before, do grab me on the way out. I do love to meet new people, ask new questions, make friends, come and say hello. Um, if you're joining us this morning for the first time, you are so, so welcome. If you call this place home and are here every week, we are so glad that you're back again this week. Um, as I've said to you, I am a part of the team here. I am one of the youth pastors and it is an absolute joy um, to be one of our youth pastors here. It means I get to journey, it means I get to encourage and lead our young people and it is great 99% of the time. 99% of the time. We say um, around youth that we um, are serious about Jesus but also super serious about having fun and being super serious about Jesus also means you're super serious about community. And if you're new to Northern Ireland or you've been here for a long time, you will know that the way we show love and we do community well is what we insult each other, right? Like you go ham when you really are like doing life alongside someone. Our young people are experts at throwing a bit of a dig. Um, I'm gonna give you a quick example. I've spotted him in the room. I won't name names, but he's starting to sink into his chair. He knows that this one's done. We, um, Earlier this year, I got the, the dreaded text message from Specsavers. Does anybody else get that? Where it's like, we miss you. You don't come back. We want to say hello. And I was like, right, okay, got to go back, see Specsavers. Walked in, done the eye test. Sad news, wasn't great. Time for an upgrade. Need new glasses. Um, and so what happened was, essentially, I got a bit of a telling off from Specsavers. A bit of a telling off that my, this is, nobody asked for this information, that the lens of my eye was starting to get damaged, right? And I was like, that's cool. How do we, like, how do you fix that? And the lady told me, she's like, what you need to do is you need to go out there and pick a pair of glasses with a frame with a really wide lens, right? Now, I don't know if any of you also need, like, really wide lens glasses. There's not a huge selection. There's, like, a wee wiry pair, there's like a really red pair. I don't know why there's always really red ones. There's like really bold, thick frame red ones. And then there's like square ones. And I was standing there like, like what I do? Does this lady not understand? I have to go and walk into youth, like a room full of young people with a new pair of glasses. So I stood there, tried a few on. They have this really cool little like iPad that does like a scan of your face and tries to encourage you and tell you which pair actually look good instead of you just trying to guess. So I um, went for the wiry pair of glasses, right? Now, I don't know, I look like a bit of a bug. Do you know like with the, the lens is really huge and your eyes kind of get a bit bigger and it looks a bit like, a bit intense. I went for those ones and put them on. I was like, some of you are out here living in like HD and don't even realize it. Put these glasses on, went to youth and one of our young people, the second I walked in, was like, oh. I was like, what do you mean? Oh, like, it's a bit rude. He's like, I don't love your glasses, Amy. I was like, I don't love them either, but like, I'd like to see things, okay? Like, I, this is the compromise we have to make. He was like, do you know what you look like? You look like a womble, right? I, how many of you know what wombles are? When I say the word womble, okay, right? This young person, we're at a stage in youth ministry, right? This generation of young people don't know who the Spice Girls are. No idea. They know who Niall Horan is, they know who Harry Styles is, but they don't know that they came from One Direction. Right? This is where we are. He called me a womble. I was like, I don't know what kind of circles you're running that you know what wombles are and don't know who Jerry Halliwell is. But anyway, called me a womble. And I was like, I'm going to be gracious. 
I'm going to move past this. Carrying on with youth. He didn't stop there. We do a segment in youth called Hot Seat, where we put a leader on this speaker sound thing, I don't really know what it is, on a stool and ask them some questions, kind of embarrass them a little bit, but also make some space for our young people to ask questions, get to know them. It's like a two minute insight into the life of some of their youth leaders. I wasn't even on Hot Seat, right? I'm out in the foyer after you. Same young person walked up to me after. Amy, I've got like, got some feedback on Hot Seat. I was like, great. I would love to hear that. There's nothing I would love to hear more right now than your feedback on Hot Seat. And he said to me, he was like, why, why do you not ask leaders how old they are? And I was like, didn't really feel like it was a super interesting thing to talk about. He's like, no, 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 no. Like, you all, you all know how old I am. Like, you know where I go to school. You know like, how my parents are. You know what I do on my weekend. Like, I think it's only fair. Like, we know how old you guys are. And I was like, great. I'll add it in. We'll put that in for next week. And he's like, well, while you're here, like, how old are you? And I was like, well, 25. And he went, oh. I was like, how much worse can this get? He's like, sucks to be. If you were on X Factor, you'd be in the overs category. And I was like, I don't know why that really stunk. I was like, he's actually right. I would have been with Louis Walsh in Dublin. Like, I absolutely hate my life. And there's that passage in Ecclesiastes, right? There's a time to laugh and a time to cry. Sometimes I don't know which way to go. I don't know which one to do. Um, so we would love to see at youth, if you're passionate about young people, and would love to truly be humbled before the Lord in this house, we would love to see you there. That is a quick insight. He is absolutely scundered. Aren't I so great I didn't name and shame him there? I'll get you later. Uh, we um, are on week four of our series, um, Dreams of the Future. If you didn't notice earlier on, Alex held up a little booklet. Ta-da! A little booklet um, of the, the habits of the home, like a little seasonal book we're going through. If you don't have one of those, um, you can grab one in the foyer in the way out. They're actually really great. I do love it with a wee coffee in the morning. Um, but if you've missed a week or jumping into this series for the first time, I'm going to very quickly bring you up to speed on where we've been and what we've been talking about. You can go back and check on YouTube, watch the back, which I highly recommend, and on Spotify as well. Andy, lovely Andy Masters, started us off by inviting each of us to ask the question, what would happen if God did the impossible? Could it be that there's a wide open space for us to enter into with him as our imaginations begin to come alive in the spirit? And if so, what areas of our lives would we begin to open up to those impossible dreams? What would happen? What would begin to change? Together, over the last few weeks, we've carried those same questions into conversations around dreaming for ourselves, dreaming for our families. And today, if you haven't gathered from our lovely liturgy, we are going to be talking, praying, dreaming daring for our friendships. We all have a general understanding of friendship. It is, of course, a very universal concept. We're all familiar with the idea, but this morning we're going to unpack what it looks like in a godly, spirit-filled context. But before we jump in to the topic and the wonderful world of friendship, let's very quickly pray. Holy Spirit, you are so welcome in this space this morning. Father, we pray um, that as we begin to dream, we become um, to partner our imaginations with um, the dreams you have for your kingdom coming to the Lagan Valley. Father, would you just um, make yourself known to each of us this morning? Father, would your voice be louder? Would your presence be tangible? Um, we just welcome you um, to do whatever it is you want to do in this space this morning. Amen. 
as we have uh, brought you up to speed, I am part of the youth team here, and so I thought when it comes to trying to define the word friendship, to unpack the term friendship, who better really is there to ask than some of our very own LBB young people? And so when tasked with a question to answer, what is the marker of a good friend? Here is what some of them had to say. I do have to preface this just by saying that what's going to happen here is you're going to get a great insight into youth culture um, and the fiery, loyal nature of our teenagers here. It's not necessarily super healthy. We'll get to that in a minute. Um, but it does highlight the difference between how culture will define friendship and how God defines friendship, which we're going to be exploring together. So what is the marker of a good friend? I feel like family fortunes here. Our survey says, when you're joking. Uh, I'm going to give you a few of their answers. What is the marker of a good friend? A good friend will hype you up on social media and back you up in the group chat. It's a good place to start, it's not bad. Some of you are looking at me like, I'll be able to know which one of these came from my teenager. A good friend agrees to share food with you when you go out for dinner, especially when it comes to the sides. Also pretty fair. They understand that your enemies are now by default their enemies. They'll validate your feelings without gaslighting you. Some of you will need to grab someone at the age of 18 to explain that to you on your way out this morning. Then we have two direct quotes, which I'm going to try not to say in their own little accents, in their own little way they speak. A proper mate knows that it's totally fine to be having two completely different conversations on two completely different social media platforms with you at the exact same time. And the next one, the real ones. The real ones will snap you immediately after being out to fill you in on all the drama and all the goss. That's gossip for those of you in the room that don't quite know what I mean by goss. On all the goss, they let you know who said what, who they said it to, and how it all went down without missing a single detail before word gets out and people start talking about it in school. I mean, it seems pretty fair. Not too bad. I don't know how many of you would necessarily use these exact same markers to define your friendship, but there is something to be said for this intentionality behind deciding who we choose to call a friend. It only makes sense for there to be some kind of criteria, some general expectations for those that we are closest to, spend most time with, and invite in on our wildest of adventures. There's a well-known quote that says, show me your friends and I'll show you your future we start to become who we surround ourselves with. And whether we realize it or not, we are influenced by the voices and the opinions that we allow to be loudest in our own world. As we begin to dream, to lean in, to pray, and to prophesy, could it be that Jesus has higher expectations and dreams for our friendships too? What changes would we notice in our friendships if the formative voice was the one that we find in his word and in truth from the spirit? What would begin to change? What would we notice? And so what we're going to do is we're going to read uh, from John chapter 15 as we jump in this morning. If you have a Bible, please open it and follow along with us. John chapter 15, verse 9 to 17. If you don't have a Bible with you, there should be some black Bibles on chairs or on the floor around you. If you didn't bring one with you this morning or you don't have one, the black one on the floor is now yours. You can take that home. I'm also going to read it for us. It will also be up on the screen behind me. John chapter 15, verse 9 to 17. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. 
I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love as no one than this, to lay down their life for one's friends. You are my friends, and if you do what I command, I no longer call you servants, because a servant does not know his father's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything that I learned from my father, I have made known to you. You didn't choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you may go and you may bear fruit, fruit that will last, and so that whatever you ask in my name, the father will give you. This is my command love each other. In this passage, we meet Jesus and the disciples having a conversation around a table in the upper room. In the first century Holy Lands, the upper room was an open-aired spot found at the top of buildings where at the end of long days, families, friends, and neighbors would gather to laugh, to drink, to lounge, and to reflect together. It was a casual, cozy space that to its core inhabited a posture of come as you are, welcoming people of all ages and all stages to rest in community, to share burdens, to seek wisdom and to find joy. To enter in was to leave your day at the door, to relish in friendship and to delight in the simplicity of just being. Jesus created the same environment for his disciples. Although in this upper room, the stories echoed whispers of the miraculous and the dreams for tomorrow were filled with a holy expectation. In this upper room and around this table, they broke bread and they drank wine together. They laughed and they cried. They had hard conversations and they asked tough questions. They washed each other's feet and they learned from Jesus himself. John 15 gives us a behind-the-curtain insight into what friendship was designed to look like. God, in his kindness, gives us people to do this life alongside, but here Jesus models a living example of how deep community and friendship has the potential to serve each of us. Before stepping out into that wide open space for our imaginations and the prophetic to come alive and dreaming for our friendships, it only makes sense to first go back and to learn from Jesus. And so as I've been reading and leaning in for myself this week, I like to think I'm a good friend, but I'm no expert. I've been asking, God, what are your dreams for our friendships? And so there's three things I would love to share with you this morning. The first one is this, that they would be rich in diversity. There are 13 seats at this table, and I'm not saying that you need to go and start cutting out friends and limit it to only 13, like one needs to prove themselves to fill in the place of another one. But none of them looked like him. None of them even very, very often looked like each other. In the upper room, we see teachers, we see leaders, we see writers, and we've got healers. We see fishermen, tax collectors, politicians, thieves, businessmen. Some were skeptical, some loyal, some fiery and inquisitive, others practical, a few courageous. They were passionate, analytical, generous, hospitable. The list could go on and on. Healthy friendships require challenge for growth. If we only read content and entertain conversations that we agree with, it leads us to become quite narrow-minded people. When friends share opinions and thoughts and ask the right questions, what it does is encourages us to start thinking for ourselves. The pieces of the puzzle start coming together to create a technicolor, big-picture understanding of the world that we live in, which can only be a good thing, right? I don't think any of us are naive enough to think that our own personal life experiences and opinions are the only valid ones that contribute to some kind of overarching narrative of what it means to be human. Of course they're not. 
There are billions of other people with their experiences and their own personalities and their own opinions that are completely different to mine. But as I create space for diversity, my worldview begins to broaden. Jesus did not have social media, although I would love to follow that if there was one. There weren't tabloids printed every day that spoke about him, a much more culturally appropriate interpretation of show me your friends and I'll show you your future would be show me your table and I'll show you your friends. Show me your table and I'll show you your future. Reputation was defined by who sat at your table. To sit with the outcasts was to become an outcast. To sit with rulers was to be of some kind of importance. Jesus didn't tolerate diversity, he embraced it. As followers of Jesus, though, how much clearer does our understanding of the heart of the Father become when we continue and we choose to scoot over and pull up chairs and make room at our tables for those that look nothing like us? When we look around our tables and see people older than us, people younger than us, people with different abilities, people from different cultures, our friendships begin to reflect and resemble something of the body of Christ. Church community, friendship, and relationship with others was part of God's design. When there's gaps, we all miss out. We miss out on wisdom, we miss out on counsel, we miss out on mentorship from others. And I'm not entirely sure where this little kind of image comes from, but I find it really helpful as I journey friendship and begin to build my table um, and build who I choose to learn from and lead from. There's three kind of parts to this, which are kind of a side off that are helpful. Whose feet do you choose to sit at? Who's ahead of you that you learn from? Who do you ask questions to? Who teaches and who leads you? Whose feet do you sit at? The next part of that is who do you choose to sit with? Who do you journey alongside? Who is on a similar path to you that you can compare and reflect and help each other, build each other up? And the last part is who sits at your feet? Who do you speak into? Who do you encourage? Who do you pull up when they need it? A few weeks ago, Chris challenged us each to get alongside younger generations, to pass the baton, to encourage them and to intercede on their behalf with what God is doing in their generation. But what this actually means is that there's none of us that are disqualified from building intentional friendships. It means that we need the oldest of us and the youngest of us to have seats at each other's tables. We can't underestimate though that the majority and the reality for each of us is that most of our friends sit in the people we sit with category. We're not great at sitting at other people's feet. We're not great at having people sit at ours. We are great at building people that we sit with. Arguably one of Jesus' greatest miracles was that by the age of 33, he had 12 close best friends. One of our young people is already exposed. I'm 25. Um, But I can already see that as we start to get older, friendship has to become a choice. It begins to cost us something. We have to make time for it and intentionally invest in it. Life starts to get in the way. Family, work, school drop-offs, Saturday morning, hockey. I'm not saying any of those things are bad or that you should go and start cutting out. I'm simply highlighting that things start to get in the way and it gets harder to prioritize our friendships. We look back and realize that, yeah, maybe we have 5, 10, 15, 30 friends. But if we're being honest, there's very little depth to any of those friendships. 
We don't always get to choose what challenges, adventures, or seasons we come up against in life, but we do get to choose who we journey it alongside. If God wants to bless your life more often than not, he uses people around you who experience blessing and kindness by inviting other people in. Richness and diversity is the first dream I believe God has for our friendship. The second one is this, that they would create a culture of accountability. Verse nine says, remain in my love. And a little further down, Jesus says, you didn't choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. Jesus calls his disciples to remain in his love, to remain in him, to abide in him. Some translations word this, to read, find your home and make your home in me. There's an invitation from Jesus to his friends. Walk with me, eat with me, follow me, find your home in me. And I don't know who lives in each of your homes, but I do know that it gets really hard not to notice and not to be able to point things out in the people that you live with. You see all sides of people. You see the good, you see the bad, and you see the ugly. Earlier this year, the lovely Lucy Caldwell, there she is. Um, and I moved in together. Lucy lives in Ballyclare. I was in Banbridge. We love what Jesus is doing here and thought we should plant ourselves in the community that we pray for and we dream for. So we moved in together. Um, there's not a lot I don't know about Lucy Caldwell. Some would argue too much, maybe, and vice versa. But what's really interesting is a lot of you guys, with a lot of love, after we moved in, we're like, well, how's it going? All going well? Love you settled in? Yeah, yeah. Have you fallen out yet? It's like, no. Of course I haven't. And so we were having a few of these conversations on a Sunday to the point where we both sat down and we're like, are people asking you the same questions? It's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Is there anything you want to confess? Do I bother you? Is there anything I do that you feel like you want to bring up here? Um, and so we got talking and actually realized, no, there isn't really anything we do that, each, that bothers each other. There was no grounds for anything that was going to cause a fallout. We did notice though that we had, we had noticed each other's little habits. Like, Lucy likes to leave cupboard doors open. She'll go into the kitchen and take out a jam, thing of jam, and leave all the doors open. And the fridge sometimes. That's a fun one. I did prep her that I would say, I asked permission before I like spoke this out in front of church. Don't worry, she was cool with it. But in the same note, I am a security freak. I have padlocks on our back gate. I like turn all the plugs off. We'll have the front door locked. Also, we'll take the key, leave the key in the door sometimes and sometimes we'll move it away from the door so that if someone put their hand through the letterbox, there's no key there to turn. Like I have thought of everything. And we laughed about this. We're like, it's kind of funny that we notice the little habits that each other have. But it's impossible to share a home with someone, have your lives so interconnected and not pick up on their little habits. It's also difficult not to notice when they're feeling off, when they need encouragement or an ice cream float at two o'clock in the morning. Sometimes when it's time to cheer and to celebrate big, there's comfort in being so intimately known by another person. It's a gift to define community amongst people that you can be vulnerable with and feel safe around. But there is an expectation that we as Jesus followers are radically in pursuit of holiness. Jesus calls us to remain in him, to find a home in him so that we become more like him. Show me your friends and I'll show you your future. We become the culture that we saturate ourselves in. Accountability is not a new concept to the church, but often it's understood to be negative. Come and tell me everything you've done wrong. Come and tell me everything you've done wrong. Come on, tell me everything you've done wrong. That is not accountability. It's not accountability. Accountability is holding someone accountable to the call of God that's on their lives. 
It's much more concerned about where you're going than what you're running from. It literally challenges and takes account of where you've been and shows you that you have the ability to move into more. Accountability is literally as simple as account and ability. When you give your life away, you find it. When you turn from bad habits and move towards Jesus, there's transformation. Why? Because accountability is the common catalyst in all of those things. If our friendships are built on accountability with challenge, then they need to be calling out what you prophetically see in people. You speak out the more in them that Jesus has for them to move towards. A few weeks ago, we looked at the example of Gideon for this. He's hiding in a wine press, and someone calls along and calls him a mighty warrior. There's nothing about a mighty warrior hiding in a wine press. In that exact moment, he is nothing at all like that, but it was prophetically called out in him and became his story later on. Dreaming for the future is to call out the gold in people. It helps keep each other accountable to what God has placed on our hearts. Friendship pushes us towards continuously longing for more. Real friends don't stab you in the back, they stab you in the chest and they do it with love. If those friends aren't bold enough to call out and to highlight your potential and then prophetically speak increase and more into your life, then who's gonna do it? If it's not your friends, if it's not the people that you journey closest with, who's gonna do it? Planting ourselves in a culture of accountability with friends that are also in trajectory towards pursuing holiness with Jesus challenges and encourages and supports us to become the kind of people that bear good fruit. It adjusts the lens through which we see the world and centers us back onto our true north, abiding in, remaining in, finding home in company with the one that we were always meant to draw close to. I believe that God dreams for our friendships to be firstly rich in diversity, to adopt a culture of accountability, and lastly, to be deep wells of grace. John 15, this passage we've been looking at this morning is the last conversation that Jesus has with the disciples before his trial and his death and his resurrection. And this is how the chapter ends. This is my command, love each other. In its original translation, the word used for love is agape. And C.S. Lewis says this about agape. Come up on the screen. Agape love is unconditional love. It is unconcerned with the self and concerned with the greatest good of another. Agape isn't born out of emotions, feelings, familiarity, or attraction, but from the will and as a choice. Agape requires faithfulness, commitment, and sacrifice without expecting anything in return. And based on Romans chapter five, Eugene Peterson paraphrases, to put it really simply and say this, love says, I've seen the ugly parts of you and I'm choosing to stay. Agape love is the love that we see demonstrated on the cross and it is laced with grace. It is through grace that God works to change our hearts. Grace transforms our thinking, renews our minds, gives us permission to live into all that he has for us. And it's by grace that we are reminded of who we are in light of what Jesus has done for us. We only get to extend grace because Jesus did it first. Jesus gives his disciples a new commandment to follow. Love each other well. As they begin to put this agape love into practice and are quick to pour out grace on each other, they would see that it's who they are in him that is the common thread that binds each of us together. Regardless of what mistakes they've made, how they've hurt each other, would they be quick to love well? Because why? Jesus loved us first.
What would change if each of our friendships echoed the heartbeat of agape? If we were from fitted to serve out that well of grace, even when we didn't feel like it, and even when it hurt, what would begin to change? I think God dreams for our friendships to be rich in diversity, to have a culture of accountability, and to be deep wells of grace. Later in John 21, we find an example of how each of these things bind together so, so beautifully. As Jesus, in all his graciousness, brings the upper room to a beach, and as we um, look at this, just to respond, I'm going to invite the guys to jump back up. In John 21, we, we see Jesus call out the disciples from the sea. They're in a state of grief, and they go out fishing. They go back to what they know, to what feels comfortable, because they feel lost. They don't know what else to do. And Jesus is there on a beach and calls them out and calls them in. And he sits with his friends. He makes them breakfast. I don't think I want to eat fish for breakfast, but that's they do. That's their gig, that's cool. They eat fish for breakfast, they eat together. And they do a bit of a catch up and Jesus checks in and then he pulls Peter to the side. And this is where we find him. In John 21. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus had asked him for a third time. Do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And so Jesus said, Peter, feed my sheep. Jesus asks three times, and if you know the story, he knows that he's asking three times to counter every mistake. He's extending out of that deep well of grace for a friend. The first time Jesus asks Peter, he uses the word agape for love. Peter replies, Jesus, you know I love you. He uses a word called filio, which is a brotherly kind of love. Jesus asks again, Peter, do you love me with an agape love? Peter replies again, Jesus, of course I love you. Like you know that with a filio love. Jesus asks for a third time, Peter, do you love me with an agape kind of love? Then he replies, Jesus, you know all things. You know, I've abided in you for years. There's no part of me that is unknown to you. Of course, I love you with an agape kind of love. And it's then that Jesus gives him the invitation to follow me again. His reply is, feed my sheep. Or to paraphrase, go now and love my people with an agape kind of love, how I love them. Or to simplify again, Peter, go and be a great friend. I don't think it's any coincidence that Jesus is parting words to his disciples in the upper room and his last words to Peter before his ascension said the same thing. It wasn't advice on how to build a church. It wasn't advice on how to be a great pastor. It wasn't advice on how to baptize people. It was be a great friend. Jesus is parting words to his closest people were go now and be a great friend. Friendship matters to Jesus. Your friendship matters to Jesus. After this conversation, we know Jesus says, follow me. And the author of this scripture in the passage of John says this at the very bottom. Jesus did many things well. If, one of, if every one of them, sorry, were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that could have been written. 
there is no ceiling. There is no limit to the dreams that God has for our friendships when we first find friendship in Him. There's not enough books in the world that could hold the stories of the things that Jesus did and that Jesus desires to do in us when we first prioritize our friendship and our relationship with Him. And so as we come to respond this morning, we're gonna partner with what the Holy Spirit is doing and speaking and how He's moving in the room. And so if you're able, why don't you jump to your feet as we respond? We're gonna respond two ways this morning. First, practically, and secondly, um, from a heart response. Friendships with a culture of accountability are a gift. They are a true gift. Imagine having a friend that loves you enough to stab you in the front because they can call out the more that Jesus has for you. I sense that for some of us in the room this morning, um, friendships are hard. Or friendships with a few people are hard. You've been hurt by close friends. And maybe this morning, actually, what's happening is the Holy Spirit is letting you realize that it wasn't how the friend hurt you that broke the friendship. You weren't open to the honesty. You weren't ready for the love that the friend was giving you from an agape place because they abide in you, they know you, and they see prophetically the potential that you have when you're accountable to all that God has for you. Maybe some of us this morning need to call a friend. Maybe they're in the room and you need to go and chat to them when we finish. Maybe actually to get over the hurt, you need to prophetically call out something in them. You've been hurt by a friend that was extending honesty and accountability and you weren't ready to receive it. So I challenge you this morning to go and to pick up a phone, to call a friend, to send a message, to arrange the coffee that needs to be had because you've been hurt by a friend that actually was just being a great friend. The second way we're gonna respond this morning is um, from place in your heart, from posture. And so in the passage where we find Peter, Jesus brings the upper room to a beach and he sits with Peter and he looks him in the eyes and he says, Peter, do you love me? I wanna ask you, Jesus was to ask you, do you love me? How would you answer the question? For some of us, maybe we need to spend more time in the upper room with Jesus, abiding in him, finding a home in him, so that we become more like him. We have a dream to see the city alive and a region and a church on fire for the presence of God and the power of the Holy Spirit. How do we share that with the community if we haven't received it for ourselves first? There's a quote from um, a well-known theologian says this. I am convinced, by the way, that friendships provide the most fertile soil for evangelism. When the reality of Christ is introduced into a relationship of love and trust that has already been established, the effect is powerful. And it seems that invariably when someone becomes a true follower of Christ, the person's first impulse is to find a friend and introduce that friend to Jesus. Have you spent enough time in the upper room and around the bonfire with Jesus? Because he invites us there to abide in him, to become like him, to share that with other people. If Jesus asked you the question, do you love me? How would you answer? 
The second um, kind of tangent off that is, I sense there's some people in the room um, have never sat at a bonfire with Jesus because you're not familiar with Jesus. And so the same love um, that is poured out on each of us and over his friends is available to each of us. And so if you're in the room this morning and you don't know Jesus, we would love to introduce you to him. He's a true and better example of friendship. He's the King of heaven and the Son of God, but he wants to call you a friend. And so as we worship, um, there's gonna be some of our team at the front um, that would love to pray for you. If you would like to meet Jesus this morning, we would love to introduce him to you. Um, but maybe for some of us, there's a hard conversation that needs to be had before you can look at Jesus and tell him you love him. And we would love to journey that with you. And so Lang Valley Vineyard, if you were at a bonfire with Jesus and he asked him, do you love me? How would you answer? Or if that feels a little hard, let me rephrase the question. Would Jesus call you a friend? Would he call you a friend? Jesus, we thank you that you are the true and the better example of friendship. And we thank you that, that your dreams for our friendships exceed any expectation we could ever have. Father, would they be rich in diversity? Would they adopt cultures of accountability? And they would, would they be deep wells of grace, not of anything we offer, but because we humbly sit at your feet, we abide in you, we remain in you, we become like you, and we offer out of all of those places because you did it first. Jesus, we thank you that at the heart of your gospel is reconciliation. And so we pray this morning over broken friendships, over friendships that need a bit of love and attention, over friendships that are yet to be had and over relationships with you that are yet to start. Jesus, we invite you in on all of our wildest adventures as we begin to pray prophetically and dream for our friendships and for our relationships. Would you just be so loud in each of that, Father? Would your word come alive as we look to it for inspiration, for dreams, for our friendships? Jesus, we welcome you in this space. Jesus, we pray um, for our city to come alive with your presence and your power. But Father, we pray for an increase for each of us this morning, for our own friendships, for our own family relationships and for our own relationships with you. Jesus, would you be so glorified in this space this morning as we pray and as we do ministry together as friends because you loved us so well first. So we invite some people um, to come up and to help lead us um, in some prayer ministry. We would love to pray for you this morning. So don't be afraid to come um, and allow someone to pray for you, but we are gonna worship together.